yourself and your hearers. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the promises that we have in your word. That he who began a good work in us shall bring it to completion. And we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us into a church in which we can see with our eyes and experience what it is to be a disciple of Christ where we can hear and grow in a knowledge of God through Your Word. Lord, I pray that we all would be a people who are fully assured of Your power that is greater than the power of our own sin and greater than the power of the schemes of the devil to keep us until the end. I pray, Father, that as we understand these truths more and more, they would be truths which catapult us into this world with lives of holiness. Father, grant us this morning the illuminating power of Your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these last verses of chapter 4 really summarize Paul's exhortations to Timothy beginning in chapter 4. He brings them essentially to a conclusion by stressing to Timothy the need for Timothy to continue to excel, particularly in three areas. Number one, his Christian walk, Timothy's own personal Christian walk. Number two, his teaching of the Word of God. And number three, his reliance upon the power of God in all of these things. Timothy's life is to be one that is worthy of imitation. Paul imitates Jesus. Timothy is one who has been discipled under Paul and one who is to imitate Paul. And they both are to be imitators ultimately of Christ. And so the church should be able to see Timothy and imitate him as he imitates Jesus. He is ultimately to provide a visible contradiction to the lives of the false teachers that are within the church and plaguing her. And if there has been any confusion among the people at the church of Ephesus as to what the Christian life should look like, it should begin to be clarified as they look at Timothy's life. That's Paul's emphasis in verses 11 to 12. Command and teach these things, and then ultimately provide an example to the believers. In verse 13, the emphasis is on teaching the Word of God. The greatest antidote to the poisonous and deadly doctrines that have begun to plague the church and doctrines that Paul ultimately calls demonic, the only solution to anything like that and any kind of darkness is to add the light of the Word of God, the true proclamation of the Gospel. 
In later times, Paul said, people will devote themselves to deceitful spirits, but Timothy is to devote himself to the Word. The public reading of the Word, the exhortation from the Word, and teaching of the Word. This phrase in verse 13 is essentially describing what took place in the synagogues when the Word of God was taught and what has taken place in churches ever since. Every Sunday morning when the Word of God is taught, a passage of Scripture would be read and then the the rabbi or later the, the teachers within the church would read the passage of Scripture and then unfold it for the people of God and exhort them to obey it on that basis. And so Timothy must excel in his Christian walk, his teaching of the Word of God, but finally his reliance upon the power of God, as you see in verse 14. Paul tells him there, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Now with that verse, most commentators believe that this is a reference to Timothy's ordination. When elders would lay their hands on someone in the church, it was for the purpose of commissioning them for some work of the ministry. So in Acts 13, you see the elders of the church laying their hands on Paul and Barnabas as they're sending them out among the nations as missionaries to proclaim the gospel abroad. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's probably the matter of appointing elders within the church. Come across that phrase again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Probably referring to appointing new elders. And so Paul is telling Timothy to remember specifically his charge by the elders of the church, but also not to neglect his gift. Now, if Timothy's ministry was one primarily of teaching, the gift here he is referring to is probably the gift of teaching. We see in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, and in 1 Corinthians as well, there are a whole host of gifts that God gives to His people for various aspects of the ministry. Timothy's ministry was one of teaching, and so this gift was probably a teaching gift. Paul tells him not to neglect it, but also to recognize that it is indeed a gift. It is given to you by God for the specific work of your ministry and your calling that the elders of your church have recognized you have been called to. So these are Paul's closing exhortations in this chapter. And then he sums all of them up in verses 15 and 16. And this morning I want to focus particularly on the implications of verse 16. What he says at the end of verse 16. He says, practice these things and immerse yourself in them. Be in them. Literally, clothe yourself with them so that all may see your progress. And then you can see how he he sums up all of these major characteristics, his life and his teaching here in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself, your life, and on the teaching. Persist in this. And then notice what he says. For by so doing, you will save both yourself 
and your hearers. You, Timothy, will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, if you're an evangelical, which we are, and especially if you're an evangelical of the more reformed persuasion, which, for the most part, we are, at least in particular on the matter of our eternal security, this verse and the end of this verse might sound a little strange. Timothy, your obedience and your persistence in keeping a hold on yourself and keeping a watch over yourself and on the teaching is going to have an effect on the salvation of your hearers. It's a little strange, especially from most of our backgrounds, where we believe in a gospel of justification by faith alone, by our own faith. We are not saved on the basis of our works. We are not saved on the basis of another's works. We believe the gospel that Paul preached and Paul communicated in the letter to the Romans and the letter to the Galatians and the rest of all of his letters. That God has given us this profound and glorious message of the gospel that we are saved freely by His grace. So where does this fit? You will save yourself and your hearers if you persist in these things. There's really no getting around the strangeness of this, at least the strangeness to our ears if we're used to thinking of our eternal security and assurance before God purely in the terms of free grace. There is some sense in which Paul is linking Timothy's salvation and the salvation of believers in the church to Timothy's faithfulness. Which again, poses a potential problem. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, may indeed in some sense depend on another. I hope you can see where the, where the issue might be coming in. This, this statement really ultimately has to do with our eternal security in Christ. How we might know that we have eternal life in Christ. And therefore, since it concerns our security in Christ, it concerns perhaps the most important question anyone could ever ask. How can I be sure that I am saved and that I will be saved? in the day of the Lord. How can I be be assured that when I die or when the kingdom comes with all of its glory and all of its power, I will ultimately be delivered from the just and righteous wrath of God? How can I know? That's what I want us to focus on this morning. Our eternal security our perseverance to the end. 
There's three reasons why I want to focus on this this morning. And this is just me sort of giving you what's on my mind and what's on my heart, where my heart is coming from with this message. Number one is the reality. The reality of false faith in the church. False faith in the church. R.C. Sproul, a pastor down in Florida, recently said, there are many in the church who profess faith. Not many who possess it. There are many in the church who profess faith and not many who possess it. This is a real problem within the church abroad. But the reality of false faith is not a recent phenomenon. It is not something that is unique to 20th and 21st century churches. False faith has been a problem ever since the church began. The apostles themselves dealt with the reality of false faith when they wrote and ministered to the churches. You see, for example, in Paul's letters, especially the one to the church in Galatia, you have people within the church there professing to know and to believe in Christ. They believe that He is their Savior. They believe that He is the promised Messiah. That He has come in to bring in the kingdom of God. But they've distorted the Gospel. And they have added to the Gospel of justification by faith the truth in their mind that you must also keep the works of the law. Perfect. So Paul's writing to the church at Galatia and he's dealing with believers who have begun to believe this false teaching as well as false teachers in the church who all profess to know Jesus. This is the same thing he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians where you have people who profess to know Christ and their lives are denying Him. They are pursuing lawsuits against one another. They are completely divided among one another. They are pursuing all manners of idolatry, sexual immorality. The church looks like it belongs in hell. And Paul writes to this church dealing with the issues that they've got going on there. And at the end of his letter, he tells them as well, test yourself to see that you be in the faith. So from the very beginning, Paul himself and the other apostles were dealing with the reality of false faith within the church. Jesus himself warned about this reality. Matthew 7, you'll remember in verses 22 and 23, says, On that day, speaking of the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord! Did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. They are saying and addressing Christ as Lord. They are saying, Jesus, 
You are the Messiah and you are Lord over my life. And I have done all of these miraculous things in your name. And Jesus says, no, I never knew you. And I never knew you because you were a worker of lawlessness. You professed to know me with your mouth and you denied me with your works. So Jesus warns about this as well. Richard Sibbs, in his famous book, The Bruised Reed, first published in 1630, so that's the time when he is ministering, wrote of those in his own day who had a false hope of Christ's mercy. He said, there are those who take up a hope of their own. Notice that phrase, a hope of their own, a hope of their own making. That Christ will allow them to walk in the ways to hell and yet bring them to heaven. Whereas all comfort should draw us nearer to Christ. Otherwise, it is a lying comfort, either in itself or in our application of it. So even during the time of the Reformation and and, and post-Reformation, pastors during that time were dealing with the reality of false faith among the churches. A false hope, a false sense of security in Christ. And in the modern church, our own contemporary day and age, this problem still exists. Many people profess to know Christ and recognize that when you are professing to know Christ, you are saying that Jesus has sent His Spirit into your life and has caused you to be born again and has recreated you and made you an entirely different creature who has brand new affections for the same for the for the name of God. That is what you say when you say I believe in Jesus and there are many who profess to know Christ, to be transformed by him. Yet their lives deny him. They walk as though the devil and not Jesus, where they're king. So a true understanding of our security in Christ should not drive us away from Christ. It should draw us nearer to Him. It should spur us on to greater faithfulness and holiness and obedience. But often, people's security in Christ drives them further Away and allows them to continue living in a way where they deny him by their works and yet still say they're on their way to heavenly glory. That's the first thing. Second, as I studied this passage and saw the implications of it. Namely, that the life of pastors and their teaching in some sense plays a role in their own salvation as well as others. I've also been reflecting the past couple of months on brothers who have fallen. Some recent. Some not so recent. 
some have been repentant as they, as they have fallen into sin, and some have not been repentant. And this week, I think more than any, for me, my heart, I've had to go to the Lord on my knees and ask God to keep and to protect me. The only way that any pastor or any believer in Jesus shall ever persevere to the end and reach the heavenly bliss of a glorious kingdom is solely by the grace and power of God. I have to have strength. You have to have strength given uniquely by the Spirit. And in those moments, especially this last week, realizing the profound and desperate need of the keeping grace of God, I have found that there is perhaps nothing sweeter to the soul than the truths of God's power to keep His sheep. That He will not lose one of them. And I hope that this morning these truths might minister to you. Third, what is on my heart in this, is my desire for you to know the truths of your eternal security in Christ in such a way that it causes you to persevere to the end so that my labor among you be not in vain. Let me say that one more time. My desire for you is to know the truths of your eternal security in Christ in such a way that it causes you to persevere to the end so that my labor among you be not in vain. Let me explain where I'm coming from in this. Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 15-16, where he's summoning them to live lives that are worthy of the Gospel and not to to war against one another, but to be humble among one another. He's charging them ultimately to be people who are blameless and innocent. And he says, I want you to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's his generation. That's first century Christianity, he is saying, twisted and corrupt generation. Same can be said for this. There are um, I want you to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, something very similar. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Ours, our, us, apostles, ministers among you. What is our 
hope or joy or crown of boasting. Is it not you, church, Thessalonians? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Friends, when Christ returns, or if He tarries, we all die and go and be in His presence, I do not want to stand before Him and boast in anything in myself. And I will not. There is nothing within me or with anyone in this room that is worthy of the glory of God. But I do, I do want to stand before Him and boast in you. Boast in this church and boast in the fact that you have shined in this crooked generation. That you have not been tainted or corrupted by the sin of this world, but that you have lived lives that are blameless and worthy of God. I want to say to Jesus, Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring simply to Your cross I cling, but look at these people. Aren't they glorious and beautiful in Your sight? And vital to this desire is you understanding how God works in His people to keep them blameless until the end. So what I want to do is summarize what Scripture teaches us about this, about our security, about our perseverance, and then unpack it. So here's my main point. Christians are finally saved. This is ultimately finally saved at the end through the preserving power of God that protects His people from the schemes of the devil, causing them to persevere to the end by His gracious gifts. Christians are finally saved through the preserving power of God that protects His people from the schemes of the devil and that causes them to persevere to the end by His gracious gifts, using His gracious gifts, using the means that He has given us to fight. So there's two parts to that. Number one has to do with the preserving power of God, His protecting us till the end. And number two, it has to do with our perseverance. Our perseverance to the saints. So, beginning, we will... Uh, we will begin with the preserving power of God, that He will keep His people. Now, there are some traditions that deny that God, by His power alone, can keep His people from falling away. They might affirm that it is possible that that could happen, but ultimately, every person's salvation is finally dependent upon His own will. His own power. His own ability to remain steadfast within Himself until the end. That is what is required above all. is the power of our will. And if our will fails us, 
then we lose our salvation. Because God's power is ultimately unable to keep us to the end. This is the position of several traditions. This is the position of one, Arminianism. I know many of you have heard of Calvinism and Arminianism and all of the the differences between the two. Well, historically speaking, Arminianism denies the truth that God will keep His people unto the end. That is one of the major differences between those two positions. Calvinism in particularly says, as we look at the Bible, as we see what Jesus says about keeping His sheep, as we see what Paul says about God's power to bring grace into His people and to strengthen His people and to bring them all the way to the end, we see abundant security for the people of God. This is also the position of Catholicism. Relevant, given the last week with all of the hoopla over the Pope coming in. Roman Catholicism being placed on everyone's radar. This is the position of Catholicism, though. There is no guarantee that you will ever make it into heaven. You could lose your salvation. Which is why they have distinctions between mortal and venial sins and a whole system derived from that. So there are several traditions who teach God cannot keep His people to the end. They can ultimately fall away from the faith. And certainly they would appeal to texts like some of the ones that we have seen already. 1 Timothy 4, where Paul warns warns expressly that in later times some will depart from the faith. And they look at passages like this and say, look, this is clear. There is apostasy. There are people who are falling away. Of course, as we've seen, and I hope I've explained accurately to you, those who fall away, biblically speaking, according to 1 John, are those who were never of us, who did not have true faith. They had what I spoke of earlier, a false faith, a faith that looked real, a faith that apparently produced some fruit for some time, but didn't persevere to the end. Now, if you believe this position, that we can lose our salvation, that we who have truly been born again can fall away, this position can certainly be very devastating to someone's soul. And it will not spur you on to greater obedience. It spurs you on to pursue a life of asceticism and legalism and denying yourself things that God has given you for your enjoyment. And it can especially be devastating as soon as we contemplate the fickleness of our own human hearts. George Herbert was a poet in the 15th century, into the 16th. He wrote a poem called Giddiness. And in one of the sections of that poem, he speaks of mankind, of our, of our hearts, of, of a man within any given hour being 20 different people. And the description was meant to teach us that our hearts in any given moment go in a million different directions. 
that in one moment we can be extremely happy and in the next we can be extremely sad. In one moment we can be extremely confident in the grace of God and the next we might doubt it. The human heart is very much fickle. And if our salvation is ultimately dependent upon our own hearts and the steadfastness of our own will, this can be a very devastating thing to believe for our souls. God's Word gives us better promises. It tells us that God will keep us, and it does so in many different ways. But I want, to, I want you to see in particular how all three persons of the triune God work together to keep us. How God the Father works to keep us. How God the Son works to keep us. And how God the Holy Spirit works within us and among us to keep us to the end. First is that God the Father preserves us by His eternal plan. His eternal plan. A plan that He has worked out from the very beginning. We saw when we began in our study together in Ephesians, in the very beginning of chapter 1, that He has predestined us, predestined His people, chosen His people from before the foundation of the world to be adopted as His Sons. Before Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and every other chapter in Genesis, there was a plan in the mind of God to bring Himself great glory by saving you in particular in this world. And this plan that He has begun from before the foundation of the world is continued on until the very End until we are finally conformed completely into the image of Christ. This is what Paul communicates in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The end of God's plan for us is our glorification. Our being made completely like Christ. The image of Christ being perfectly seen within us. Us sharing the same resurrection bodies that Jesus inhabits now. Bodies that are incapable of sin. Incapable of falling away. And incapable of ever dying again. That is our glorification. And Paul speaks of it in Romans 8 as though it is already complete. And he does so because it is such an assured thing. If He has called us, if He has justified us, He will also glorify us. And so in a very real sense, we can speak of being glorified by God. You see, friends, the truths of God's eternal plan for us before the foundation of the world and all of this predestination and election language is not meant to be a doctrine that confuses us or launches us into particular debates of any kind. It is ultimately for our comfort. 
It is God teaching us that before you were even created, before you had even done anything good or bad, I called you to be my son or my daughter. I loved you before you ever loved me. And so it is true what the Apostle John says, we love Him because He first loved us. God's eternal plan is a truth that should give us an eternal comfort of our security in Him. Second, God the Son, our Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, intercedes for us so that no scheme of the devil can ultimately ruin us. Which is another way to say the Son of God prays for us. He prays for His people. He prays to God for His people. He goes to the Father and He asks that you be protected by name. This is the one, Father, You have given Me from before the foundation of the world. This is the one whom I came to die for. This is the one whose My blood has been shed for. He is cleansed, God. Keep Him. And do not let the schemes of the devil take Him. And it pleases the Father to answer the prayers of the Son. Their wills are in complete unison. So if the Son singles you out by name and prays for you in particular, the Father is joyful to answer that prayer. And they will keep you. You'll remember how He interceded, how Jesus interceded on behalf of Peter. He told Peter, He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Did Peter sin? Oh, indeed, Peter sinned greatly. Peter sinned greatly three times in denying the Master whom he was so confident in. But Jesus prayed for Peter by name that ultimately despite his failures, his faith in Christ would not fail. And so also does the Son of God pray for us by name to the Father. And His prayer is powerful and effective. What He asked for is always the will of God. So when He prays for you, He is praying the perfect will of God for you and nothing can thwart the will of God. And His words also come with the power of God. The very same power that was conveyed in the Word when He spoke all of creation into existence is the very same power that exists when He prays for you. When He says, I desire that your faith may not fail, it comes with the power to create and to resurrect. It's a power that not even death can conquer. And death is Satan's greatest power. And so Jesus' power defeats His. 
And Jesus also shed His blood for us. It is a, a blood that cleanses us of our sins completely. And it provides another basis upon which He prays for us. Father, my blood shed for them. Your wrath has already come upon them as it came upon me. There is no judgment for them left. Keep them in the faith. And the Father will hear. It is because we have an advocate like this. An intercessor on our behalf. And one who has shed his own spotless blood for us that we can ultimately confidently sing. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Yet not only, friends, do we have the Father and the Son preserving us and protecting us, but we have the work of the Holy Spirit that guarantees our redemption. Think indeed for a moment of what the Spirit does for us. He seals us. When you believed in the Gospel, when you heard the Gospel and believed truly from your heart that ultimately your salvation is completely dependent upon Christ, you were sealed with the Spirit of God. And Paul says, this sealing is unto the day of redemption. God has marked you out as His. It's like taking a hot iron and stamping it upon a cow and saying, this one is mine. No one can take Him from me. That is what the Spirit's sealing is for us. He marks us out as His people. The Spirit is also the one who causes us to be born again. If you have believed in the Gospel, it is only because the Spirit worked a recreating miracle within your heart. He caused you to be made brand new. He is the one who removed the stony heart that hardened itself against the Gospel of God. And He is the one who placed a new heart within yours giving you brand new affections and making you what Paul calls a new man so that the old is gone and the new has been brought in. In the very beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and He fills everything on the earth and then the final act of His creation is to create man and woman. In the new creation, it's the reverse. He makes His people first. He makes us all brand new new. And now we anticipate the new creation to come. He also gives us gifts and strengthens us in our inner being. And He gives us new spiritual life as He makes us more and more into the image of Christ. And this work ultimately culminates in in Him raising us from the dead. So Paul says in Romans 8.11, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit remakes us. The Spirit seals us. And the Spirit is the one who will raise us from the dead. Now none of that, friends, can be undone. We cannot remake ourselves into the old man. 
We are made brand new. We have been born again into the family of God. This cannot be revoked. And no power of hell and no scheme of the devil can ever change that fact. We can never fall away. We cannot undo what He has created new. No, friends, let us take great comfort in the truth that from the beginning to the end, our God is preserving us by His power daily. But we must also not fall into the error of believing that our security in Christ grants us a license for unholy or unspiritual living. This is one of the reasons why I don't think it's very helpful the phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't think it communicates accurately what the Bible teaches us about God's preserving power. That phrase is more often than not used to communicate the reality that you can sin every day, all day, without repentance and be sure of your salvation. In fact, there was a movement not too long ago, and it still exists in smaller parts of the West, that taught that someone, by simply making a profession of faith, or being baptized, or walking an aisle, or doing something public to say, I am a believer, can in fact be a believer, yet not have Jesus as their Lord. That they can actually be a born-again, true Christian, and not submit themselves to the Lord as their King, but to the devil. Once saved, always saved. I don't think it is very helpful with that phrase in particular. Because the security that we have in Christ is ultimately one that should lead us into a greater perseverance of obedience and holiness. And this is where our second main point comes in. The perseverance of the saints. I said before that Christians are finally saved through the preserving power of God that protects His people from the schemes of the devil, causing them, causing them to persevere to the end by His gracious gifts. That last part is crucial. That God's protecting power causes us to persevere to the end. Our security in Christ shouldn't move us towards a sleepy Christianity. But a Christianity that works and labors for the inheritance of eternal life. We have several people here who are gardeners. Joe is a gardener. Several people who are very good at it. Now, if someone were to come to you, if you're a gardener or you own a farm of some sort, and were to say with you, with all the assurance and all the prophetic and future-telling abilities of a prophet of God, that in the next year you are going to have the greatest harvest you have ever seen. Your harvest is going to be 100-fold more than it has ever 
been. That would not give you permission to put down your tiller and to no longer plant any seeds. No. That would cause you to work that much harder. You would labor. You would till your soil. You would take the greatest care of your ground as possible. But as you would labor and as you would work, you would be working with a joy that you know in the future this is going to result in a grand harvest. That's what our security in Christ should be like for us. It should cause us to work and to labor with joy. Consider as well the Israelites as they come out of the Exodus. They come through the Red Sea and they're wandering in the wilderness. What did God promise them? He promised them a promised land. A land of inheritance that had been promised to their forefathers 400 years ago. He said, I'm bringing you out of Egypt and giving you all of this land and it will be a land that is ultimately blessed and that is flowing with milk and honey. There will be peace and security in this place, and I will dwell with you in it. But they weren't able to just walk in and receive it. They had to fight. They had to go to war. They were ultimately the instruments of God's judgment against unrighteous nations polluting that land. And God was giving it to them and saying to them, this is yours. I have already given it to you, but you have to work for it. You have to labor. You have to sweat. You have to fight. Because there are others who don't want you to have it. In a very real sense, as we continue to live in this wilderness, in this land that we are not citizens of, but that we are sojourners and aliens in, God has given us a promise. A promise of eternal life and a promise of an inheritance of a kingdom of God. A promise that we will be co-heirs with Christ. It's yours! But you will have to labor. And you will have to work. Your working will not be one that is in vain, and it will not be one that is without hope. It will be a labor of love, and a labor with a promise that there will be a great inheritance at the end. This is how we see the Apostle Paul speaking of holiness and the pursuit of eternal life himself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is active in you. God is working in you. He has given you His Spirit. He will make you new. And on that basis, pick up your tiller and toy, toil with a labor of joy. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. He says, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I press on. I struggle toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's what he says to the Philippians. Let those of us who are mature think this way. There is an upward call. There is a goal. I'm going to press on towards it. And I'm going to fight for it. Romans 8.13 If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a flesh, there is sin that is warring against you that does not want you to inherit eternal life. Put it to death by the power of the Spirit. You will live. Jesus Himself uses the language of endurance. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who continues to struggle, the one who continues to fight for holiness and righteousness will be saved. The Gospel promises that in Christ, God has given us an inheritance of eternal life. But just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we also have to fight against our enemies, which is our own sin. And in order to do this, God gives us gifts. He gives us the means. He gives us the tools and the resources by which we do this. He gives us the tiller that we might till the ground. The first thing He gives us is His Word. His Word. His Word is our sword. And it is a sword that can conquer any temptation that comes at it. And to enter into this world and to get up in the morning and to go to your work or to go to your occupation, to go out into this world without the sword is to enter into a battle without a weapon. So He gives us His sword. And He gives us a sword that promises to be the resource to save us. James 1.21 says, Therefore, Beloved, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. This is why perhaps one of the most important tasks you can set yourself to and you can fight for and you can strive for is to commit the Word of God into your heart, into your memory to read it over and over so that you are saturated with it. Because when temptations come, the strength of your own will will not bring you out of that temptation. You need the power of the sword, the Word of God, which is able to save your souls. He also gives us prayer. Prayer is a gift. It is a means that He has given to His people by which we might communicate to God and tell Him of our needs and tell Him of our desires, the things that we need in order to wage the war of righteousness in this world. And through prayer, God communicates to us His power. He gives us strength to fight for holiness. But as well, 
And among other things, he gives us examples. He gives us examples. This is where Paul's words at the end of chapter 4 come in. Paul says at the end of chapter 4 that Timothy is to become an example for the people of God. And as he becomes an example, he's going to keep a close watch on himself and to continue teaching the Word of God. And by that means, he will save himself and others. That is the sense in which Paul is communicating Timothy's Timothy being the means of someone's salvation. God gives us examples when it comes to learning what true discipleship is and learning what walking with Christ is. And for the early church of Ephesus, Timothy was an example for them to follow. If they had any questions on what it was to walk with Christ, they could look and see Timothy as an example. Well, this is ultimately, friends, how discipleship works. It's not only a matter of Bible studies and gathering together and learning what the Word of God says and teaches, right? That's equipping ourselves with the sword. It's not only equipping ourselves with the power of prayer. It's being able to see what this all looks like. And that's why it is vital for the church within every believer's life. There is no Christian walk apart from the church. Because it is within the church that we see what it looks like to imitate Christ and to walk with Him. The way that God has set up things and the way that God has ordered the way that we might persevere is to provide us with examples so that we can see it. So the question I want to end with is, what are we modeling? Within our own lives, within our own devotions, within our own families, within this church, what are we modeling? When people look at our lives, when other believers look at our lives, are they seeing someone who is in imitation of Christ? Or, have we perhaps misunderstood the security that we have in Christ for a license to live however we might please? Paul calls us as a church and as individuals to be imitators of Jesus so that others around us might also see Jesus and persevere to the end. Our confidence and hope in Christ should not be one that moves us further away from Christ, but it should be one that draws us closer to Him. It should be one that increases our devotional lives and our devotion to God and our devotion to the spread of His glory in the nations. That is what our security in Christ should lead us to. And it gives us a great promise as we pursue eternal life. It gives us a promise that God has given us these things. So we are nothing more now than the Israelites making their way to the promised land. The call for us is to fight. 
to take up our swords and to fight. And the promise is that victory will be given to us. Just as Jericho's walls fell, so also will our sin fall when we use the means that God has given us for our holiness and joy. Would you pray with me, please?